Good morning. Thank you, musicians. I thought we were going to have people rush the stage at the offertory. Well, what a wonderful morning it's already been. We have seen a lot of familiar faces. We're so glad to have Betty Lou back with us. She is back. Betty Lou, I, I didn't have anybody to harass me on Wednesday night, so we, you'll be back, yes. Thank God. Whew. It's been just too easy. And then we have all of the whites, the white, the, gosh, okay, the white children, that is their last name, okay? The good news is we're on Facebook live so that people can misunderstand that one. We're glad to see Natalie and Joey and Catherine here today. They're here to celebrate your 30th birthday, Mrs. White. Mrs. White is 30. This times two. And happy birthday to Marcia White. Tomorrow, tomorrow, and of course, happy birthday to you, Stephanie. Thank you, Dave, for reminding me. Actually, David Reed did send me a text the night before and just said, hey, just a reminder, your wife's birthday tomorrow. That is a friend who sticks closer than a brother right there. <laughs> he was sick, too. He didn't, his wife told me he didn't do anything for the last two weeks, but that was the one thing he did do. He did send me a text. Well, happy birthday to everyone. If you have your Bibles, turn them to Matthew 7, 20. Let's, let's start at Matthew 5, 19. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 5, 19. This is the conclusion of our sermon series of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is the final sermon in the series. But before we begin the last sermon in this series, I want us to look at two verses and just do a quick review of the sermon. The sermon is full of didactic literature. That means it's full of teaching literature. Jesus is teaching us as believers what we are to look like as believers, how we are to live out our faith. Because as Christians, it was very important that we understood that though salvation is by grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone, that that still means something insofar as what our faith is to look like in real life. So I want you, if you, if you, if you can, I want you to put little stars between these two verses. The beginning of the sermon and the ending of the sermon. In verse 19, I want you to see these two verses, Matthew 5.19 and Matthew 7.24, as bookends. Bookends. The things that keep everything in the middle together. Without these two things, if we just take Jesus' teaching on anger and retaliation and love for enemies... And we don't bookend all of those teachings with these two verses. We're going to miss the point of the sermon. Matthew 5.19 says this. Whoever does them, that is the commandments of God, and teaches them will be called great 
in the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 24 of chapter 7, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. These are Jesus' teachings. It is not enough to hear them and not do them. But it is not enough to do them and not hear them. Many people do good works and don't attribute any of it to the glory of God. Many people are charitable, are faithful to their spouses. They don't hate their neighbors. They don't retaliate. They might even be able to love their enemies. But just doing those things and not doing it out of love for Jesus is not enough. But merely loving Jesus and not doing these things is not enough either. And sometimes we find ourselves in a tug of war of loving and not doing and doing and not loving. But Jesus' most famous sermon in the Bible is that we must do both. The wise man hears Jesus speak and obeys Jesus' words. And never shall we separate the two. Yes, Confucius said many wise teachings, but he is incapable of taking away your sins. Yes, many people do moral things and they too are incapable of taking away your sins. These are Jesus' words. Hear Jesus speak and heed his commands. That is the thrust of the sermon. Obey Jesus. Let's look at our passage this morning. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Lord, comfort us with your word. Challenge us with your word. Guide us with your word. Let us not be like the man who reads the word and forgets what it says, but let us read the word. And heed the word. And build our house upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Make that happen, God. As we read the word today, God, only you can open up hearts. Only you can change minds. Moms and dads can't change minds. Arrest 
Drug addiction can't change minds. Only the Holy Spirit can change minds. Holy Spirit, change minds through the reading of your word. Amen. Last week, we learned about false prophets. That they are an ever-present reality for every age of the church. We learned that false prophets look like us. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. We learned that false prophets talk like us. They say, Lord, Lord. But they don't live like us. For Jesus said, we will know them by the fruit they bear. If last week was about false prophets, though, this week is about false professions. False professions of faith. Last week was a narrow group of people who come into the church and try and, like ravenous wolves, devour the sheep of God. But this week is about all of us. Those of us who make false professions. Who say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. But who don't do what God commands. Last week we learned that false prophets are an ever-present reality in the church. And this week, we're going to learn that false professions are an ever-present reality in the church. First thing I want us to talk about this morning is what doesn't make Jesus our Lord. What doesn't make Jesus our Lord? There are three things that merely by themselves are insufficient for making Jesus our Lord. They are our words, they are our works, and they are our beliefs. If all we have is our words, if all we have is our works, if all we have is our beliefs and not a relationship with Christ, we don't have Christ. So this morning I want to prove that to you. And even if we have all three of those, by themselves, they are insufficient grounds for salvation. I want to prove that to you this morning. Number one, our words don't make Jesus our Lord. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, that is the judgment. This is a judgment scene. The scene here is a judgment scene. Those who claim to be Jesus' followers will do so at the judgment. They will claim to God, yeah, but we made you our Lord. Look at what we did. Look at what we said. Look at what we believed. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. But our words by themselves are not enough to effectively make Jesus our Lord. Many times our religious language is impressive in sound but hollow in meaning. Our words of religion and tradition are passed down to us from our parents and grandparents so that we know what to say, but in reality, what we say means very little. Jesus said of the Pharisees, you hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You can say the right things and have a heart that is far from Jesus. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We can even worship God, but in reality we're really worshiping the commandments of men. And we can be deceived into thinking that our worship of the commandments of men is tantamount to our worship of the commandments of God. In that particular context, Jesus was charging the Pharisees of breaking the commandment of God to honor mother and father. By teaching that a person need not honor their father with financial help when he needs it. In that context, Jesus was challenging a false religion built on words rather than on actual deeds. But if all we have is words, we don't have enough. Not only that, our works are insufficient to make Jesus our Lord. Our works don't make us Christian by themselves. Many will do amazing things in the name of Jesus. They prophesy. And so I want you to see these aren't small things that these people are doing. What these people are doing that Jesus is talking about are big things. They're impressive things. They're amazing things. They prophesy. Now, whether they were telling the truth or telling the future, they were preaching. And they were doing amazing works. Not only did they prophesy, but they were able to cast out demons and even perform miracles. But just doing those things doesn't mean that a person has truly made Jesus their Lord. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's prophecy. I speak holy words and I prophesy on God's behalf, but I don't have love, I'm a clanging gong. It must be once a week I get a question about tongues. Do you believe in tongues? My question back to them is always, are you impressed with tongues? I'm not. Because God's people shouldn't be impressed with tongues. Wicked and adulterous generations demand signs and wonders. God's people demand love. That's impressive. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, these people are really smart. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, they can do miracles. They can remove mountains. They do impressive things, but have not love. Paul says, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, now they're even charitable. Now they're even doing good works. They, are, they have embraced a social gospel. They give away all that they have. And if I deliver up my body even to be burned, but I don't have love, it is all for nothing. Because not only do our words not save us, but neither do our works save us. We have our own religious traditions and speech codes. 
we wear our Sunday best to church. I have heard recently people say things like, I can't come to church because I don't have anything to wear. Dave, was, Dave preached an awesome sermon on Friday for Bill's uh, funeral. It was awesome. One of the best sermons I've ever heard. In fact, I've asked him to preach it. It, is, it was beautiful. But he told the story that when he first invited Bill to preach, or to, to come to church, he didn't invite Bill to preach even though he tried. <laughs> But then when he invited Bill to church, he said, I don't have anything to wear. If our clothes turn people away from thinking they can come into our body, better that we come in t-shirts and shorts. Yeah, come as you are. I mean, bathe, but come as you are. I dress this way because Rudy makes me. <laughs> actually, actually, Rudy is a lot more progressive. It's Susan who makes me. Susan makes me dress this way. Or we say, God bless you when someone sneezes. That's good religious language, right? We've got our own words and our own traditions. We do altar calls and we feel like we haven't been to church unless the pastors made us feel guilty enough to come down front. We practice Lent. Or we put La Seng de Jesus bumper stickers on our cars to protect us from car crashes. It's ironic, every bumper that I've seen that has that bumper sticker on it has been hit. It's been rear-ended. <laughs> but we have our own religious speech and our own religious works, and we feel good about them. And I don't know, we could add others there, but the fact of the matter is our words and our works don't save us. They don't make Jesus our Lord. And while most of these things, not necessarily all of them are fine to do, none of them effectively make you a Christian. I want you to understand that just because you're here this morning, that doesn't make you saved. Just because you wore your Sunday best doesn't make you saved. Or if you spoke in the tongues of angels and men, that does not make you saved. And one of the tricks of the devil is that he's able to mimic or duplicate the works of God. Every work except selfless, other-directed, sacrificial love. So don't be impressed with words and works. Please, don't be. But not only that, don't impress yourselves with words and works. Don't look at yourself and say, good job. Now Jesus loves me. But not only that, our beliefs don't save us. Hello. Hello, wait a second now. Certainly our beliefs save us, right? James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe that much and they shudder. So your beliefs make you a demon. 
You have effectively become a demon with your beliefs. The demons know God. Says that when the men, that that Satan came before God in Job. Demons are afraid of God. Remember that while the disciples didn't even know who Jesus was, it was the demons who said to him, why do you come to persecute us, son of man? And Jesus silenced the demons. The demons had better theology than his own disciples. Better theology. But our beliefs don't, not in themselves, not in themselves. All of these things, not in themselves, make Jesus our Lord. Our words, our works, and our beliefs are only the outgrowth and not the source of our salvation. Let me say that again. Our words, our works, and our beliefs are only the outgrowth, never are they the source of our salvation. I'm going to say that one more time. Our Words, works, and beliefs are only the outgrowth, but not the source of our salvation. That is a false gospel. Westminster Confession of Faith speaks about people who do these things of God who aren't necessarily saved. Westminster Confession of Faith, Article 16, Paragraph 7. Works done by unregenerate, that means non-Christian men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and others, being honest is a good trait to have out in the world. It's not enough to save you. Yet because those works proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word of God, nor to a right end, namely the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive grace from God, and yet their neglect of them is more sinful and even displeasing unto God. What's it saying? Yes, your cousin, the Buddhist, can help an old lady across the street. Yes, he can pay his taxes. Yes, he can be a faithful spouse. But none of those things are enough to save you. What good is prophesying about the future if our hearts are far from God? What does casting out demons mean if the Holy Spirit does not dwell in your heart? So what if you're able to perform miracles if you hate your neighbor? You see, God doesn't care about your good intentions or your heavenly speech or even your mighty works in His name. What He cares about is your obedience to His commands. Listen to the words Samuel spoke to Saul. You have said this before, I'll say it again. Have you ever compared the sin of Saul to the sins of David? Draw them on a piece of paper. Put a line down the middle and say, David sins and Saul sins. Saul's sins in the real world of things are minor compared to what David did. Saul got a little anxious... 
He offered a sacrifice before the prophet Samuel got there, and he didn't kill all of the animals. He was supposed to wipe out all of the Amalekites, and he didn't do that, but he kept, he had good intentions. His intention was to keep back some of those animals, and he would sacrifice those animals to honor God. Those were Saul's sins. Now compare those to David. What did David do? He got on his, while his men were out fighting, he was a coward back home. And he lusted over a woman. And from that lust, it gave birth to real sin. And he committed adultery with her. And then to cover it up, he called, his wife, or he called the, the woman's husband back home and tried to get him to lay with her. But he was more moral than the king. And he didn't lay with her. So then David, to cover it up, sent him back out to the field, put him on the front lines, had the men withdraw from him. And the husband was murdered. I mean, that's an episode of The Sopranos. But Saul was rejected. And David was called a man after God's own heart. A dignity Saul never had. Listen to what Samuel the prophet says to them. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying his voice? He's not impressed with the works of your hands. What will you build him? The maker of heaven and earth. What will you give to him with your hands? He's not impressed with that. Behold, says Samuel, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen to him is better than the fat of rams. Obey. He who hears these words of mine... And who does these words of mine for my sake? Not just to do them, but to do them because I said them. Because what I say means something. Because what God says we can take to the bank as infallible, inerrant, unobjectionable truth. What does it matter that you offer sacrifices of your hand? Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Our words and our works and our beliefs absolutely matter. But they are not the source of your salvation. Theologian John Frame says, When Christ died, we died to sin. When he rose, we rose to righteousness. We are one with Christ in his death and resurrection. So those historic facts have moral implications for us. We should live in accord with the new life given to us by God's grace when we rose with Christ. But these acts by themselves, apart from true faith, are not enough to save us. What's the application? We have to check the oil of our relationship with God on a regular basis. Why are we doing what we're doing? I am most susceptible to this sin. I am very susceptible to this sin. 
In my position, I can look back at what I've done for the Lord this week, and I've got a lot of things that make me look like I'm really pleasing to God. Man, I prayed with people this week. Right? Man, I met with people. I counseled people this week. I taught this week. I went to seminary this week. I preached this week. I wrote a sermon this week. And I can look back at all of those and be really impressed with myself. Benjamin Franklin said he kept a morality chart. And after he'd been keeping it perfectly for three days, he found that pride kept in, crept in. And it's just like this with me. I can look at all these things. I talked to somebody earlier this week. I was talking about how I never missed church growing up. And I just can't understand how people miss church. And as I'm talking, yeah, 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 and I'm just listening to myself, and I'm just feeling so good about who I am. And and Jesus is so lucky to have me, Pastor Andrew, seminary student. He's so lucky to have me. And the devil is pleased With that false gospel. As we buried this week and remembered Bill Barker. We sang a song Amazing Grace. And it says at the beginning. Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. Bill Barker was a wonderful example of reminding us what we look like on the inside. To God. What impresses men does not impress God. By the way, I know I yell a lot. I'm just really excited about this. I wait all week to get here. I love this. I'm going to have some people preach for me in in, in the coming months. I hate it. I want to preach. I'm just excited. But God has not called me and he has not called you to merely go through the motions of Christianity. He wants our complete obedience. This means that it is possible to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. We can say, Lord, Lord, and not really love Jesus. We can say, Lord, Lord, and he not really be our master. We can prophesy in his name and hate it in the inside. We can worship idols in our heart. We can cast out demons and allow them residence in our minds. And we can do mighty works in God's name, but for our own glory. We must regularly check the oil of the relationship we have with God and ask why we do what we do. What should we do? Seek God's glory in all that we say and do. Whether we do big things or small things, we must ask ourselves, do we do it all for the glory of God and in obedience to Him? Don't try to impress people with holy words and religious works. Jesus has warned us that if we practice our righteousness before men, our reward is their approval and no more. Instead, love God. Glorify Him. Enjoy Him. Have a relationship with Him. And for that reason alone, and not for any secondary glories from men, cry out, Lord, Lord. Cry out, Abba, Father. Cry out, glory to God in the highest. 
but do so from a heart of utter dependence upon him and not to win the approval of men. Jesus doesn't say there's anything wrong with crying out, Lord, Lord. You should. But when you do, mean it. Know that you are naked without him. You're dead without him. You're condemned without him. Know that when you cry out, Jesus, you do so as a child cries out to a father. Utter and complete dependence upon him. Nothing else. So then what makes Jesus our Lord? We know what doesn't make Jesus our Lord. What makes Jesus our Lord? Here's what makes Jesus our Lord. When we speak, when we walk, and when we believe, we do so in Christ alone. What makes Jesus our Lord is that our walk, that is our religious works, are in Him alone. Our speech is to Him and in Him alone. And our beliefs are from Him and by Him and for Him alone. You did not love God first. He loved you first. So that everything you give back to him is what he has given you to give back to him. My daughter wanted to buy a gift for, for Stephanie this week. She didn't have any money. So we gave her money to buy a gift for Stephanie. And you look at that and you say, yeah, but you didn't really give anything up. Yeah, Yes, she did. She gave back what was given to her. And guess what? We don't love her any more or any less than when she gave it back. There's not more love for this baby now. It's the same amount of love. But she did what she was given to do. Would that we would burn up all of the chafe of our words and of our works and build our salvation on Christ alone. Oh, God, help us to get rid of these facsimile gods of our own self-righteousness. Sometimes we confuse our Christian walk as our only walking away from sin. But that's only half of the story. Saved as well as unsaved people can feel grief about their sins. Hebrews 12, 17 says, For you know that afterward, when he, that is Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you, left a for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. 
The world can have worldly grief about sin. But godly grief produces true repentance and dependence upon Christ. Listen to how Paul says what godly grief is in 2 Corinthians 7.10, the very next verse. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What makes us saved is not a turning from sin, but a turning from sin and a turning to Christ. So many times I meet, so many times I meet Christians and talk with people who when I ask them about their salvation, the story is the same. I was drinking too much, smoking too much. My life was in shambles, and now my life is better. You've turned from these things. They have value to turn from these things, but have you turned to Christ? Simply having grief for your sin does not effectively make Jesus your Lord. The Greek phrase kiri kiri, which in our English Bibles translates Lord, Lord, means master, master. In English, when we use the word Lord, we think it just means a, it's like a divine title, like we're just describing Jesus. But kurios meant my master. You're my master. In 1 Peter 3, 6, listen to how they tie in what the expectation of someone who has a curios. It says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him master. The double use of curios here, that is Lord, is used by Jesus to show how eager a person can be to prove to him and to the world that they're really his followers by nothing more than the use of their words, by saying it a lot. But calling someone Lord is never enough. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Therefore, what makes Jesus our Lord is not our declaration of him as such, but rather our obedience to him. As Lord. Saying is not the same thing as doing. God has made it so that Christians will never have assurance of their confession of faith in Christ Jesus as a genuine confession of faith so long as they fail to have this crucial element obedience. Christian, you will never be at peace. You will never have assurance of your faith so long as you are disobeying his commands. He has made it that way. He has made a thorn in your side to be uncomfortable, to doubt your salvation, as long as you disobey him. Did you hear about the young man who went to his pastor and said, I don't believe in God anymore? And the pastor responded by saying, how long have you been having sex with your girlfriend? Our doubts about theology go hand in hand with our disobedience. And God has made it that way as a gift. It's like a pain sensor in our body. Pain is a wonderful thing. If you didn't have it, you wouldn't get the problem corrected. 
When you feel that pain in your leg, you go to the doctor. And the doctor fixes it, hopefully. He fixes it. But if you didn't feel the pain, it would get worse and get infected. And that infection would corrupt your whole body and destroy you. And thank God he has given you a heart of flesh to make you sensitive and to make you uncomfortable as long as you're living in sin and make you doubt your salvation. Because the markers of your salvation aren't there. Why should you be confident when Jesus is merely Lord with your mouth. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Romans 6.4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Ephesians 5, 8, and 10. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. When Jesus is truly your Lord, Lord, you obey his commands. There's not a part in your life where Jesus can't look to and say, that belongs to me. What your little hands do, you do for the glory of God. What your little eye looks at, you do for the glory of God. Where your little feet go, you do for the glory of God. What your little mind thinks, you do for the glory of God. Even in eating and drinking, you do for the glory of God. For anything not done in faith is sin. Even the good works. When done outside of faith, Our sin. Even the good works. Calling on Jesus as Lord, Lord in a genuine way means walking in newness of life. It means that we abide in Him forever. Walking in the same way in which He walked. If our cry, Lord, Lord, is truly genuine, then we ought to talk like Christ talked, walk like Christ walked, pray like Christ prayed, love like Christ loved, live like Christ lived, and die like Christ died. Because the servant is not greater than the master. Master, master, what would you have me do today? Master, master. How can I give my thought to you, my hands to you, my money to you, my children to you, my spouse to you, my job to you, my food to you, my drink to you, my relationships with others to you. Master, master. 
stake eternity on this. I'm here to tell you this morning to stake eternity on this. I want you to hear how heavy this is. You will listen to people all week on talk radio who will tell you how to invest your money and they'll tell you how to vote your votes and they'll tell you how to protest your protests and all of those are for this life. I want you to understand what we're doing right now. I'm telling you to stake your eternity on what Jesus says. What will it profit you if you have bigger barns and gain the whole world and your soul be lost in the mix? Nothing. This moment is a solemn moment. It is a holy moment. Jesus is going to conclude the greatest sermon ever preached. And he is going to say this. I have seen eternity. I am from eternity. I am the master and judge of eternity. Everything you do in this life is but a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. What I am telling you is this. I know eternity, says Jesus. Stake your life and your eternity on what I'm about to tell you. That's what he is saying. The antidote here to our false religion is hearing and doing the words of Jesus. It is not enough to hear and not do. It is not enough to do and not hear. We must hear and do His words. Hear and heed His words. Many today have replaced the gospel of grace with a social gospel where charity reigns supreme. We're fooled into thinking that by simply feeding the poor and giving homes to homeless and working to eradicate social injustice, that somehow this means we have the light of Christ. Maybe. But if we do all these things for the wrong reasons, they are the wrong things to do. Listen to what Jesus says as he finishes the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, the words of Jesus. These are not moral axioms. They are not moral principles. They belong to God. All truth belongs to God. If it comes out of the mouth of Confucius, it belongs to God. These are God's words. He was with God in the beginning, and everything that was made was made through Him, so that all truth belongs to Him. These are Jesus' words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Those winds and those rains and those floods are not just the hardship of life. They are the very wrath of God. God will send the rains and the floods. 
to test his people. And his people will stand in that day. Why did that house stand? Because it was founded on the rock. What is the rock? Hearing the words of Jesus. Obeying the words of Jesus. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name. I came to church every Sunday. I brought my Bible. I wore my Sunday best. I practiced Lent. I gave to the homeless. Lord, Lord, I did many mighty works in your names. At a camp I spoke in tongues. Lord, Lord, look at all that I did. That is sand. But when you stand before God, we say, Lord, Lord, look at your son. Thank you for him, and in him, and in him alone I stand. That is the rock. Let's pray. Oh, in Christ alone our hope is found. Every good work this week, Lord, we give it back to you. You did everything for us. We give it back to you. We give it to you. Our love for our family and for our friends and for our church, we give it to you. And none of it earns us favor with you, Lord, because you've already done it in Christ. Lord, would that every heart in here this day would build their house on the rock that is Christ alone. That is my plea. Amen. Would you stand with us as we prepare for the Lord's Supper?